In May of 1996, an attractive blonde woman drove a shiny BMW from Maryland to Virginia to dispose of an awkward package. A few days later, a Loudoun County Sheriff's deputy spotted something odd while driving through Harper's Ferry National Park. In fact, the big black steamer trunk looked suspiciously out of place. The deputy pulled over to take a closer look, but the heavy trunk barely moved when he nudged it with his foot. Next, he reached down and gingerly lifted the hinged top. Inside were two duffel bags, one inside the other. Then, as he unzipped the innermost bag, his gaze was returned by a milky human eye peering up at him through the dark recess. The corpse belonged to an emaciated elderly man wearing only a pajama top. His head was partially covered by a soiled pillowcase, but the body wasn't in an advanced state of decay. He obviously hadn't been dead for very long. He must have been killed elsewhere and dumped in the park, but the deputy found it strange that the trunk was in such a conspicuous location. He radioed in his grisly find and secured the crime scene until a forensic team could arrive. Later, during the autopsy, the medical examiner discovered cuts and abrasions all over the man's body. He had significant bruising and swelling around his neck and throat as well. There was also blunt force trauma to the back of the head, but that injury didn't appear to be the cause of death. Instead, it looked like he died from asphyxiation due to manual compression of the neck. In other words, someone had strangled him. An FBI crime lab also determined that the man's blood and liver contained high levels of over-the-counter medications known to have sedative effects. The concentrations suggested that the drugs had been administered consistently and in large doses for weeks or perhaps months before the man met his untimely end. Considering how he was found, he may not have taken the medications willingly. Whatever the case, a relatively clear picture of the gruesome crime began to emerge. It looked like the elderly man had been drugged, perhaps starved, hit on the back of the head, strangled, stuffed into a trunk, and dumped unceremoniously in Harper's Ferry National Park. The next question investigators had to answer was, who was he? In the beginning, investigators assumed that identifying the victim would be relatively easy, but that wasn't the case. He didn't match any known missing persons, and since he had no identification on him, police forwarded his fingerprints to the FBI. Agents ran the prints through their bureau's extensive database but received no matches, and DNA analysis was a dead end too. With few options remaining, investigators submitted composite sketches and descriptions of how and where the victim was found to unsolve mysteries in America's Most Wanted. But despite the large national viewership of each show, nothing of note turned up. Frustrated investigators never figured out who the dead man was, and the case ground to a halt for nearly seven years. This is Monsters. Nancy Schweitzer was born on March 30, 1948, and spent most of her childhood in Baltimore's Fells Point neighborhood. Her parents never married, and her mother took her older sister and abandoned the family before Nancy was even a teenager. Nancy's father was a hard-drinking, hard-gambling ex-merchant mariner who worked at the local steel mill and didn't have much time for his daughter. 
When he wasn't home, Nancy often stayed with her alcoholic aunt. Then one night in 1964, her father was jumped outside a bar in a rough neighborhood. The nature of the attack isn't clear, but he took such a severe beating that he died two days later. At just 16 years old, poor Nancy was essentially an orphan. Her future didn't look particularly bright, but she was attractive, talented, and ambitious, and she planned on making it big in showbiz, leaving Baltimore and her troubled childhood in the rearview mirror where they belonged. Nancy's first break came when she auditioned for a coveted spot on the Buddy Dean show. Petite, blonde, and blue-eyed, Nancy beat out a number of competitors and quickly became one of the program's most popular dancers. She also got a part in the popular musical Hairspray, but her career as a performer never took off like she hoped it would. Nancy married a local construction contractor named Charles Kukarski in 1968. The couple had two daughters, but by the early 80s, their marriage was on the rocks. In addition, Mary had developed a serious gambling problem. For years, she'd make secret day trips to Atlantic City in New Jersey while Charles was working and the kids were at school. But what started out as a relatively harmless escape from the monotony of family life quickly morphed into a full-blown addiction. Early on, she was able to hide the mounting losses from her husband because she managed the household finances and kept the books for his construction business. All the while, she was siphoning significant amounts of money from various accounts, and she also took out loans and opened new credit cards in his name to support her growing habit. Charles eventually figured out what was going on when it became apparent that his successful business was far less solvent than it should have been. According to the Baltimore Sun, Nancy ultimately racked up more than $100,000 in debt in his name. Unsurprisingly, he filed for bankruptcy and they divorced shortly thereafter. Soon after the divorce, Nancy reunited with a former high school sweetheart named Ted Geisendaffer. Ted was already married at the time, but he quickly filed for divorce so he could be with Nancy. In many respects, they were polar opposites. Nancy was a tiny blonde with big dreams and a taste for life in the fast lane. On the other hand, Ted had a rock-solid work ethic and couldn't stand owing anybody a dime. Even so, they got married in Columbia, Maryland on February 8, 1985, and like her first husband had done, Ted quickly gave his new wife almost absolute control over his finances. Ted's company specialized in removing toxic substances like asbestos from homes and commercial buildings, and business was booming in the mid-80s. Ted's net worth should have been growing by leaps and bounds, but true to form, Nancy began taking money from his business and securing cash loans in his name. She also altered mortgage checks by making them payable to her instead of the mortgage company. In addition, she began working as a call girl for an executive escort service run by a woman named Linda Mayberry. Nancy was one of Linda's most popular escorts, but no matter how much extra money she made, it all seemed to disappear into the slot and video poker machines in Atlantic City. It's unclear if Ted ever discovered that his wife was working as an escort, but he eventually found out about her financial indiscretions when he got a foreclosure notice in the mail. That night, Ted slammed his fist through a wall during a heated confrontation with Nancy. Things apparently got so out of hand at one point that he shut himself in a closet because he was scared he'd kill Nancy in a fit of rage. However, other sources claim that he hid in the closet to escape Nancy's wrath. Whatever the case, Ted and Nancy separated in early 1992 and divorce proceedings dragged through the courts over the following year. 
In the end, Ted agreed to pay off the $20,000 in debt Nancy had racked up. He also agreed to give her $5,000 for her interest in the family home, which was actually worth much more. The fact that Nancy accepted $5,000 instead of holding out for more may indicate that she was desperate. That said, she may have decided to cut her losses and move on to more lucrative opportunities she'd uncovered elsewhere. Life definitely hadn't given Nancy any breaks, and now with no husband and a growing gambling addiction, she knew she had to hit the ground running. But the only way she could make ends meet was by stealing anything she could from whoever she could. A childhood acquaintance may have summed Nancy up best when she said she could calm the skin off an alligator. It's even been suggested that she took pride in her ability to make money through trickery and deceit. Still, others claimed that at least subconsciously, Nancy's insatiable appetite for money may have been fueled by a need to fill the void left behind when her mother abandoned her and her father died. After her divorce from Ted, she began stealing wallets, purses, and mail in order to get personal information like social security and bank account numbers that she then used to get driver's licenses, loans, and new credit cards. Nancy made a lot of money from these endeavors, and by then, she'd become such a consummate con artist that she was able to convince Linda Mayberry and her husband to co-sign a loan and make a hefty down payment on a new Toyota Camry she wanted to buy. Of course, Nancy didn't repay them or make any of the loan payments, and the Mayberries ended up paying off the car themselves. Later, Nancy used John Mayberry's identity to secure a $3,000 cash loan, but by the early 90s, her brash life of crime was starting to catch up with her. Just before Christmas in 1992, she stole a wallet belonging to a man named Merle Beckman. She went on a shopping spree with his credit cards and withdrew thousands from his accounts before the bank figured out what was going on. Then, in February of 1993, she stole a wallet belonging to a woman named Leslie Wallace, whose daughter was in dance class with her daughter. Nancy immediately began draining funds from her bank accounts, too. Leslie Wallace changed her account number twice, but each time Nancy managed to convince the bank employees to give her the new numbers over the phone. Afterward, she made a number of face-to-face -face withdrawals at the bank's drive through window, Bank management eventually caught on and alerted the police, and Nancy was ultimately arrested after trying to make another pickup at the same drive through window. The following year, she pleaded guilty to the charges in Maryland court, but in December of 1994, she stole another wallet belonging to a co-worker named Cynthia Kidwell. Cynthia's credit cards weren't in her wallet at the time, but her driver's license was. Nancy swapped her photo for Cynthia's and used the license to take out loans in her name. That fraud was eventually discovered, and once again, Nancy pleaded guilty to state charges stemming from the theft. But despite her growing rap sheet, she only got a short suspended sentence and probation. Even after multiple arrests and convictions, she never spent more than a few weeks in jail. But deep down, she may have known that her luck was bound to run out. As a convicted criminal with limited employment opportunities, she found work as a door-to-door -door funeral and burial services saleswoman. What an odd thing to have someone come to your door selling. You know, Grandpa is getting a little long in the tooth. You've got a sale. Of course, with her charm, charisma, and good looks, Nancy was a natural. But more importantly, the new job gave her access to an untapped pool of elderly and often naive victims who she planned on exploiting as thoroughly as she could. Jasper Watkins, who went by Jack, was born near Richmond, Virginia in 1920. 
As a teenager, he worked as a grocery clerk, but he enlisted in the army in November of 1941, just a few weeks before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Jack got married while stationed in Louisiana in 1942, but he spent much of the war as a teletype operator in India. He and his wife separated in 1946, after which he worked as a clerk at an auto parts store before moving to Reisterstown, Maryland in 1950. In Maryland, Jack met and eventually married a woman named Mary Triplett. Jack was quiet, somewhat naive, and usually saw the best in everybody. On the other hand, Mary was opinionated, temperamental, and sexually liberated, as evident in the fact that she had children from two previous relationships. By then, Jack was a frequent and often heavy drinker, but Mary told him he'd have to give up the booze and beer if he wanted anything to do with her. She'd been in a number of tumultuous relationships with heavy drinkers before, and she wasn't about to go down that road again. Jack agreed, and they married in 1964 when he was 44 and she was 40. Jack quickly endeared himself to Mary's grown daughters, but a few years into their marriage, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Eventually, it got so bad that Jack had to quit his job and take care of her. He and Mary lived frugally but comfortably on a fixed income of about $1,200 a month that came from Jack's social security benefits and a small annuity from New York life. Jack was nearly 70 when she passed away in 1989, and for the first time in more than two decades, he was all alone. Afterward, he had his heart broken by another woman who didn't share his affections. He was devastated when she married another man, but he kept himself occupied bowling, playing bingo, tending to his beloved garden, and staying in touch with his stepchildren. Jack had already been diagnosed with congestive heart disease by the time he met Nancy on November 21, 1994. On that fateful day, she stopped by his home in Reisterstown to see if she could make a commission by selling him end-of-life services. By then, she was a twice-divorced 40-something con artist on probation for a number of theft and fraud charges. He was a lonely widower, three decades her senior. Jack was immediately charmed by Nancy's confidence, personality, and stunning looks, and she sensed an opportunity to make a sale when he told her that he'd always had a fear of being buried. Nancy told him that for less than $2,500, he could rest in eternal peace in a comfy mausoleum instead of in a traditional grave. Nancy also hinted that she might be interested in Jack romantically, which was music to his ears. Unsurprisingly, Jack plunked down the necessary money to reserve his mausoleum space. Then, Nancy took down his personal information, including his social security and credit card numbers and the names of his surviving relatives. Jack also told Nancy that he owned his house outright, that he had impeccable credit, and that he paid off his credit card balances every month. According to those who knew Jack best, he and Nancy became nearly inseparable shortly after their first meeting. There were even rumors that their relationship wasn't strictly platonic, and Jack began telling everyone that he had a new fiancée. Jack was smitten with Nancy from the get-go, but unbeknownst to him, she was already dating a much younger and wealthier mortgage broker named Eric Siegel by early 1995. Nancy and Eric had a steamy on-again, off-again relationship while she was involved with Jack. Sadly, Jack was never anything more than just another score to Nancy, and in the summer of 1995, she convinced him to take out a $44,000 mortgage on his home to pay for the new BMW she had been eyeing at the local dealership. Eager to please his young love interest, Jack forked over the whole $44,000 for the new Beamer. 
He was listed on the title and paid the insurance, but Nancy was the only one who ever drove the luxury German automobile. Ironically, normally frugal Jack didn't seem particularly bothered by the fact that he no longer owned the home he'd spent nearly 30 years paying off. In fact, he was so gaga over Nancy that silly things like finances no longer mattered. And after all, she told him she'd pay off the mortgage herself. What she didn't tell him was that she'd do it with credit and never repay the credit card companies. Then, Nancy pulled the same con again in the fall of 1995. This time, she promised Jack that if he took out a second $20,000 mortgage, she'd use the money to buy the condo she was renting and that the two of them could finally start living together. It's what Jack had always wanted, but the condo wasn't even for sale, and Nancy gambled most of the money away in Atlantic City. Shortly into their relationship, Nancy began isolating Jack from his friends and family members. She knew she could continue to pull the wool over his eyes, but she worried that those who knew him best would see through the charade. Before Nancy stole Jack's heart, he met a group of friends for breakfast several times a week and had regular contact with his stepchildren. But since he preferred spending as much time as possible with the woman who'd become the center of his universe, he placed far less importance on maintaining old relationships. Over time, he attended fewer and fewer breakfasts, until one morning, Nancy drove him to the diner so he could say goodbye to his friends once and for all. By then, Jack had drifted away from his stepchildren too, but they'd become increasingly concerned that his relationship with Nancy wasn't what he thought it was. Their repeated calls to Jack's phone went unanswered because Nancy had had his calls rerouted to her number. That way, she could screen his calls and only tell him about the ones that didn't pose a threat to her racket. In addition, she began giving Jack large doses of over-the-counter medicine like Benadryl, Robitussin, and NyQuil. Along with the acetaminophen found in painkillers like Tylenol, these medications probably kept him in a state of perpetual sedation and confusion. Worse yet, he may have experienced vivid and frightening hallucinations. At the beginning of 1996, Nancy contacted a real estate investment company to see if they'd be interested in buying Jack's house in Reisterstown. The home ultimately sold for a little over $90,000, but since Jack had taken out two mortgages, he and Nancy walked away with less than $4,000. Since Nancy knew the money would be gone in a flash, she began pawning Jack's personal possessions behind his back. However, she did treat him to a short trip to Atlantic City, which according to her was to celebrate their upcoming marriage. But the real motivations behind the trip were far more nefarious. First, Nancy wanted to gamble. And second, she knew that Jack would drink, and that the alcohol and medications he was taking would turn him into a zombie. With any luck, she might be able to convince unsuspecting doctors that he suffered from dementia or Alzheimer's and needed to be institutionalized. Like she knew he would, Jack drank too much and became drunk and disoriented almost immediately. After returning to Maryland, she took him to an emergency room where he remained for more than a week. While there, Jack kept insisting that everything was okay, that he'd just had too much to drink and if they were to release him to his fiancée Nancy, everything would be fine. But outside of the examination room, Nancy told the doctors and nurses that she was his landlady, not his fiancée, and that it was proof that he was suffering from dementia. They ultimately agreed, and Jack was transferred to a psychiatric ward for further observation. This was exactly what Nancy had been hoping for. 
With Jack out of the way, she was able to steal what little he had left before riding off into the sunset to find new victims. Unfortunately, Nancy couldn't find any long-term psychiatric care facilities with immediate openings. So in mid-April of 1996, the hospital released Jack into her care. On the way to her condo, she assured Jack that everything would be alright and that they'd marry soon. But by then, the naive old World War II veteran had become little more than an inconvenient loose end that Nancy had to deal with once and for all. The fact was that she'd bled Jack as dry as she could, and the only thing left to do was to make sure that he couldn't finger her for the crimes she'd committed against him. Between mid-April and mid-May of 1996, she upped his doses and began depriving him of food, perhaps hoping that drugs, starvation, and his bad heart would mercifully end his life and save her the trouble. Nobody ever saw Jack alive again after the spring of 1996. Then, in 1998... Nancy married longtime love interest Eric Siegel, but old habits die hard and Nancy stole his money and used his name to secure loans that ultimately amounted to nearly $300,000. Ironically, Eric refused to press charges when he discovered what she'd done. Instead, he quietly paid off the debt himself, perhaps to spare himself the added hassle and stress that years of tedious legal proceedings would cause. Now, with yet another revenue source cut off, Nancy turned her attention to her own daughters. She opened credit cards in both of their names and cashed checks that were supposed to go towards her daughter Jennifer's car loan. Eventually, Jennifer's car was repossessed and both daughters' solid credit ratings were wiped out. By early 2003, the dead man from the trunk in Harper's Ferry National Park still hadn't been identified. Overworked investigators had put the case on the back burner and kept their fingers crossed that they'd get an unexpected break somewhere down the road. Meanwhile, Nancy was still cashing Jack's social security checks and pawning off his last few possessions. But investigators eventually got a break when the Department of Defense allowed them to run Jack's fingerprints through its database. And since Jack had served during World War II, investigators finally had the identity they'd been looking for all along. When they began digging through Jack's finances, a number of red flags appeared. Oddly, the frugal man's spending habits had become decidedly more frivolous in early 1995. But more interestingly, his social security checks were still being sent to a post office box in Maryland that belonged to a woman named Nancy Jean Siegel. Investigators ran her name through law enforcement databases and discovered that she had an extensive criminal history stretching back more than a decade. They began trailing Nancy in early 2003, and one agent witnessed her pick up one of Jack's social security checks from her P.O. box and cash it at a local bank. The pieces of the puzzle were starting to fall into place, but investigators didn't want to blow their chance by making a hasty arrest. Meanwhile, they interviewed Nancy's daughters because she'd occasionally deposited Jack's checks into their bank accounts. Since Nancy had stolen from Amanda and Jennifer, ruined their credit scores, and severed the last vestiges of a mother-daughter bond that once bound them together, they were all too willing to tell investigators everything they knew. They also provided a pivotal clue that investigators hadn't been expecting. When shown a photo of the black trunk in which Jack was found, Amanda apparently screamed, quote, That's my trunk! When asked how she could be so sure, she said she recognized the nail polish stains. With this new development, they stepped up their surveillance. In the middle of 2003, investigators set up a sting and nabbed Nancy at the post office in Ellicott City, Maryland while she was picking up her mail. 
Nancy calmly agreed to be interviewed, and when asked who received mail at the P.O. box, she said she and her daughters and occasionally a man named Jack Watkins. She admitted that she and Jack had lived together briefly years ago, but that as far as she knew, he lived somewhere in Pennsylvania with a woman named Ruth. Nancy fessed up to cashing his social security checks, but only because he was a gambler and a drinker with a bad case of dementia who was incapable of managing his own finances. Eventually, investigators told Nancy that they knew Jack had been dead since 1996, but that they hadn't been able to identify him until 2003. As the story goes, Nancy erupted in tears when they showed her a photograph of the black trunk in which Jack's lifeless body had been stuffed. Nancy said Jack had been a father figure to her and that she'd selflessly looked after him for years when no one else would. According to her, she came home from work one day in May of 1996 and found that Jack had hanged himself with a rope tied to a ceiling fan in her condo. But instead of calling 911, she panicked, cut him down, dressed him in just a pajama top, zipped him up in two duffel bags, stuffed him into the trunk, and dumped him in the national park. As someone who worked in residential construction for decades, I can tell you without a doubt that a ceiling fan will not hold the weight of an adult human body. Nancy's story just didn't add up, but she gave investigators repeated assurances that in due time she'd tell them everything they wanted to know. On January 16, 2004, Nancy Jean Siegel was indicted for murdering Jack Watkins all the way back in 1996. The indictment also alleged that she'd cashed nearly $90,000 of his social security checks and $10,000 more from his New York life annuity. In addition, it claimed that she'd lied to medical professionals in an attempt to have Jack diagnosed with dementia in order to get him committed to a long-term psychiatric care facility. Additional charges included bank, wire, and mail fraud, as well as identity theft and theft of government property. During pre-trial legal wrangling, her attorney Harold Glazer filed a motion to preclude the evidence of her previous theft convictions on grounds that they weren't relevant to the current charges and would unfairly sway the jury. The prosecutor argued that her previous crimes clearly established that she was a lifelong criminal and that jurors had a right to know what kind of woman they were dealing with. Some evidence of Nancy's previous crimes were ultimately allowed, but by then, investigators had painstakingly cobbled together a nearly airtight case against her. Before the trial began, Harold Glazer contended that his client had never murdered anyone. He also told reporters that Nancy constantly cried, that she was severely depressed, and that she'd even attempted suicide shortly after her arrest. During the two-week trial, prosecutors established that Nancy was a professional thief and con artist who had an uncanny knack for winning her victim's trust before robbing them blind, and in Jack's case, killing him. In addition, they repeatedly pointed out that she regularly victimized those she should have been closest to, including three husbands and two daughters. More than a decade after Jack's death, Nancy Jean Siegel, Judge Andre Davis, prosecuting U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein, and everyone else packed into the federal courtroom in Baltimore, Maryland, anxiously awaiting for the verdict to be read aloud. Despite the charged atmosphere in the courtroom, most of those present weren't particularly shocked when Nancy was found guilty of second-degree murder and the other crimes she'd been charged with. All told, she was convicted on 20 individual counts. Before the verdict was read, Nancy took the opportunity to address the court for the first time. Clad in a baggy yellow prison jumpsuit and sobbing loudly, she apologized for all the pain she'd caused throughout her life, 
However, she denied killing Jack Watkins. This pronouncement drew a firm response from Judge Davis, who emphatically stated, quote, You are a murderer. Shortly thereafter, he sentenced her to 33 years in prison, followed by five years of supervised release. Considering Nancy's age, everybody assumed she'd die behind bars. Nancy is now serving her sentence at the Hazleton Federal Penitentiary in Brewston Mills, West Virginia. By all accounts, it's a particularly bleak place that its unfortunate residents commonly refer to as Misery Mountain. Nancy will be 93 years old if she's still alive on her scheduled release date in August of 2032. On August 14, 2009, Jack Watkins was finally laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. All he wanted was to have someone to love in the last years of his life, but instead, what he got was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.